This is To and From, a new podcast from Delta and StoryCorps that shares stories of what we give and what we gain when we choose to explore. I'm your host, Michael Garofalo. Both Delta and StoryCorps help bring people closer together, whether it's taking us on a journey to see friends and loved ones, or giving us the chance to sit down in a recording booth and have a meaningful conversation with someone important to us. Because understanding where we've come from is the first step to making the world a smaller place. And the stories we'll hear on this show are about courage and curiosity, the kind of courage and curiosity that it takes to build connections in places far from where you were born. My first time to Japan, everything was different. It was like there was a part of me that was being woken up. And to keep those connections strong. I feel like we've always had that soul tie, even in the absence of talking. And those are deep. And to discover how to connect to your dreams. I now actually own my life. And making those decisions, I wake up happy every day. We'll meet people from around the world. But even though they come from very different places, there is so much that they share. People like Samantha De La Fave, who spoke with her mother, Gail. So are there any moments you remember when you knew I was going to go seek travel and adventure in my life? You were in Girl Scouts, and you were probably about 8, 10 years old. And we went up to the Adirondacks, and you entered a bat cave alone and decided you were going to try out how the bats lived. And you had everyone looking for you. (laughs) So I sort of knew then (laughs) what we were engaged in. Gail encouraged her daughter's sense of adventure, and travel became a big part of Samantha's childhood, especially this one trip they took to the Grand Canyon. I said to you, I want to remember this forever, Ma. How do I remember this forever? And you were like, just take pictures with your eyes. And you told me to just blink at it and take pictures. (laughs) I'm so glad to remember that. That, for me, was a defining moment in my life. I thought to myself, I'm never staying put. Over the next three episodes, we'll be hearing from people who, like Samantha, wouldn't stay put. What led them to uproot themselves and set off for a new place, a new life? What were they searching for, and did they find it? In Samantha's case, after bouncing around for a while, she finally did settle in Austin, Texas. And the thing that made her stay was a sense of community. And that's our theme in this first episode. Community is not only a place, it's the people you meet there who define your sense of belonging in the world. If you travel to Harlem in New York City, you'll find this kind of community at the Red Rooster. It's an award-winning restaurant, a neighborhood mainstay that serves a blend of American soul food, Ethiopian, Swedish, and other global cuisines. But it's also a community hub, a place where people meet, connect, and build relationships. That's exactly how its founder and head chef, Marcus Samuelson, wanted it. Marcus was born in Ethiopia and adopted at three by a Swedish family after his mother died of tuberculosis. In his early 20s, he was a rising star in Sweden and the youngest chef to earn a three-star review from the New York Times. Despite all this success, though, there was one lifelong dream he hadn't yet fulfilled, opening his own restaurant. And when he went looking for a place to do that, he chose Harlem. Marcus sat down with his friend Jamie Rodin, one of the very first employees at Red Rooster. They spoke about the power of breaking bread at the table, 
how being part of two cultures informed his sense of community, and why he calls Harlem home. For me, cooking is a reflection of my family. I feel like, end of the day, I represent Helga, my Swedish grandmother in cooking. She was an amazing cook, and she was much hipper than she ever thought, right? Like, she did farm-to-table without even a thought about it. It's just what you did. I remember how my grandmother used to taste things. She took stews and just poured it into her hand, you know, and and (laughs) slurped it up. There was no tablespoons. Mm -hmm. My grandma's meatballs were rough and big and seared and brown and black. Her pickles were real sour. Her bread were rustic, you know. Like right there as a kid, as a six, seven-year-old, the connection between making something and then eating it, like how much better it tastes. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, I'm from Ethiopia, and um, it's a completely different taste and community. When you make Ethiopian food, it doesn't go back to a website or an Instagram post. It goes back to like 3,000 years. I think Ethiopia is really the place that taught me to eat and cook with a spiritual compass. When you came to Harlem, what really pushed you to come? You know, when you're an immigrant, you're always in search of finding something that fits you, that suits you. In Sweden, I was told very early that I should lower my ambition. And then one chef told me, well, you know, you can work in a restaurant, but you can't really own a restaurant one day. And I started to notice that wherever I went, I was very often the only black man in the room from every level, whether it was the customer base, whether it was the chefing or it was even the supply end. And I'm like, how can I be part of changing that? And eventually I told my dad, and my dad said, you should just go to New York, you should go to America. I also knew of Harlem from storybooks and from movies. And I think as a black person, I knew that one day I wanted to live there. So is that why you placed Red Rooster in Harlem? People talk about Harlem's past and Harlem's future. And I'm like, there has to be something in the present. You know, one of the beautiful things very often in African-American communities is that church is in the center of everything. So it doesn't matter if you're the lawyer or the entertainer or the domestic, you go to the same church. And I wanted to create a restaurant that reflected that. I think that's what makes Red Rooster so special. You're going to see your lawyers, you're going to see your doctors, you're going to see your moms trying to go ahead and come in for happy hour real quick before picking up their kids. Mm-hmm. You know, you're not just a restaurant in Harlem. You employ people from yeah. Harlem. You encourage people that live in Harlem to be there. You encourage people that don't know about Harlem to feel comfortable about coming to Harlem. Food is very often a reflection of love, right? Mm-hmm. This is who we are. Right. The food really becomes the window in to that culture. And um, wherever you are in the world, if you have the opportunity to taste someone else's food, slowly you start to understand better and you really traveled. You know, when you are fortunate enough to have been exposed to a lot, it's also your job to share that. You have expanded my horizons and opened up a door for me to be successful. I mean, I say thank you Mm. to you a lot. You've made a huge impact on me. Very often when I think about Red Rooster and I think about you and some of the core people that I've known the longest, you are very much my moral compass and I really appreciate that because that's what makes Rooster magic sauce. 
That's Marcus Samuelson, founder of The Red Rooster Restaurant, speaking with his friend, Jamie Roden. While Marcus had a hunch that Harlem was where he belonged, for others, it takes setting foot in a place before they know it's right for them. That's what happened with Jason Hancock. He's an actor in Tokyo, Japan. And when he sat down with his friend, Joanna Day, he told her how he went from growing up in small-town Nebraska to making his home in one of the largest cities in the world. My high school life, I was the new kid. We moved right before high school started. And so I basically never shook that new kid feeling the whole time I was there. And the town I lived in at the time had one stoplight. But even though it was a small rural high school, they had a Japanese class as one of the foreign language options. And the teacher of that class took a real interest in me particularly. And so the Japanese class was kind of my safe place. So my first time to Japan, I was 19 years old and everything was different. And this is something that you cannot get in classrooms, that Japan smells different. In the spring, when the sakura are in bloom, it smells like the cherry blossoms. And that's not something that you can learn about. You have to be there. And so when I was there for the first time, it was like there was a part of me that was being woken up. What made you decide to make a home in Japan? When I was finishing up my undergraduate, I wanted to be in the spotlight. I wanted to be on TV, on the radio. I just wanted to be shining. And my parents, with their sound advice, they were both Idaho farm kids, was, you can't make a living in the arts. You need to get a job and keep the arts as your hobby. So the compromise was that I took a job teaching English in Japan for one year and decide what I want to do with the rest of my life. And I got off the plane and I remember like, oh, yes, this is how Japan smells. And I was assigned to a very small town in the middle of Fukushima. There was maybe two stoplights in that town. And I remember thinking, man, this kind of is like my small town in Nebraska, except for the cornfields were now rice fields. I loved it so much. I decided that at the end of my contract, I would move to Tokyo and I would pursue my dreams of being on stage and on TV and on the radio. Today, Jason is a successful TV and radio personality in Japan. A few years ago, when he was on a Delta flight from Tokyo to Boston, Jason watched a documentary about a beauty pageant for girls with special needs. He was so inspired that he decided to start a similar pageant in Japan. It's called Special Beauty, and Jason describes it as Miss Universe for kids with special needs. The contestants range in age from five years old all the way up to 25. Both girls and boys can take part. There's a talent competition, and they walk the runway. The first time I did Special Beauty, I was investing all of everything I had, all of my time, all of my money. I had to borrow money to pay my own rent for the two months leading up to Special Beauty. Being a performer myself, I know how it feels to wake up in the morning on the day of a show, feeling, today I'm a star. I never thought that it would be as gratifying to create a spotlight for someone else to shine in. And I just love seeing the kids just shine on that stage and 
the parents, when they see their kid on that stage, their faces light up. And the folks that I'm meeting now really embrace what community means. We team up our competitors with aspiring makeup artists. So what happens is these buddies just get attached to their partner. And so these very unlikely friendships happen every year. I went to a dance recital for a dance company for Down Syndrome kids a year ago, and this kid came up to me and he was like, Jason, I was a hair and makeup artist for Special Beauty two years ago. And I was like, well, what are you doing here? And he goes, my buddy is dancing today, and I came to cheer him on. And my heart just grew. And I was so happy that it was because of Special Beauty that they got to make that relationship. That's Jason Hancock with his friend Joanna Day. The pageant he founded, Special Beauty, is going into its fourth year, and it's growing. It's held at the Yamano Beauty College, where volunteers donate their time to make this two-day event a success. And that's all for this episode. The second in this series will drop on December 2nd, and it's all about love and the distances we travel for the people who matter most. This podcast was produced by Alita Cooper, Mitra Banshahi, Susan Lee, Emily Shaw, and Alyssa Pelk, with additional help from Isabel Robertson. I'm Michael Garofalo, and I'll be with you next time. Thanks for listening.